Knowledge is power, and we are all about empowering the mamas of the world. In each episode, we will unravel and interpret the latest research and evidence-based practices for pregnancy, postpartum, and motherhood. As mums and researchers ourselves, we have experienced firsthand the overwhelming complexity of information, myths, and those classic old wives' tales. I'm Dr. Renee White. And I'm Dr. Mika Petucci. And, and this, this is, is The Science of Motherhood. Motherhood. Hello and welcome to episode 22 of The Science of Motherhood. I am your co-host, Dr. Renee White. I am one half of the postpartum doula mother lover biz, Fill Your Cup. My other co-host, Dr. Mika Petucci, is on maternity leave, enjoying her time with her beautiful boy in Melbourne. Today, listeners, I have an amazing researcher and pediatric ENT consultant, Dr. Nikki Mills. She is a specialist in pediatric airway and swallowing disorders. And the reason I got her on this podcast is because she is a specialist in tongue tie and not just tongue tie, but also supporting mothers and infants having difficulty breastfeeding because she's actually also qualified as an internationally recognized lactation consultant. And if that wasn't enough acronyms after her last name, Nikki also completed just last year her PhD on the functional anatomy of sucking and swallowing in breastfeeding infants. She has some amazing, amazing scientific publications and has discovered some fascinating research. The paper that caught my eye was one where during my training with the Possums program with Dr. Pamela Douglas, I heard part of Nikki's talk where she was describing her 2019 paper, which demonstrated for the first time that the frenulum, so the structure in our mouth, which is synonymous with the tongue tie, she discovered for the first time that it is not in fact a discrete midline connective tissue structure. It is actually connected and like has a basket weaved type diaphragm structure and has all this really complex anatomy. She also, which we talk about in the interview today, was part of a team to publish a study. It was a first of its kind where they captured MRI imaging of the mother-baby dyad breastfeeding in real time. So in that study, she was demonstrating the dynamic anatomical aspects of breastfeeding. And it is such a fascinating study to read. The pictures alone are just magical, seeing that baby's mouth at the breast and, and what is actually going on there. She is a truly fascinating individual. Today we are going to tackle tongue-tie head-on. What is it? What does it actually mean what are the definitions? And you'll, you'll hear from the get-go that this is actually one of the fundamental issues with tongue-tie. There is no agreed definition. 
And that is why there is so much ambiguity within the field and potential overdiagnosis, as some people have argued in the literature. And what you'll hear from Nikki is the concept around the fact that we probably need to start taking a step back and looking at infants and taking a holistic point of view around breastfeeding issues and not pigeonholing, oh, it has to be a tongue tie issue and therefore we should conduct a phrenotomy or the snipping of that frenulum structure underneath their tongue. So I really hope that you gain some value out of this episode. As with all of our episodes, it is based on fact. It is based on what is out there in the research. And we are all about educating you and to ensure that you are making the most educated and empowered decision that you can for yourself and your family. And so without further ado, here is Dr. Nikki Mills. Hello and welcome to the podcast, Dr. Nikki Mills. How are you today? Yeah, I'm good. Thank you. All the way across the ditch. Well, I'm across the strait because now I'm in Tassie and you're across the ditch. So you're in New Zealand at the moment. Thank you so much for joining us today. We have been talking very briefly off air about the topic of tongue tie and I am absolutely humbled by having you on the podcast. I'm very excited. I know our listeners are very excited. I've done a shout out yesterday to get some people's comments and questions that they wanted me to pass on to you. But we have been talking offline about how complex this particular topic is. And I have been reading up on the literature over the weekend, in particular your studies, which caught my eye when I was doing my possums training with Pamela Douglas. And I have to say there are two things that really stand out for me with this particular topic. One, I find it fascinating that we still it's 2021, we still don't understand the relationship between the structure and the function of a tongue tie. So in that, I'm kind of, you you put it quite eloquently in your 2019 paper, you said, no publications provide a structural explanation of the variability in frenulum morphology between individuals. And so that would obviously enable an understanding of what encompasses normal anatomy and which variables have the potential to create functional limitations in tongue movement. So there's that we don't really understand structure and function and how that crosses over. And the other really big thing that kind of stood out to me was that we still don't have any agreed metrics around the stages of tongue tie, so like the severity of a tongue tie. And if a tongue tie is snipped or a what we'll get into some definitions around a phrenotomy, what does a successful phrenotomy actually look like? Yet I can see from other papers that the rates of tongue ties being or phrenotomies being uh 
administered in Australia alone between 2006 to 2016, there has been a 420% increase. So there's all these phrenotomies occurring, but we know very little information about what is actually going on at an anatomical level. So this just blows my mind, Nikki. Like what is going on here? Yeah, I mean, that's essentially why I did my research is that when I started being asked to to help divide lingual frenulums in babies to help with breastfeeding, as a surgeon, I wanted to understand what I was cutting and be really clear that I understood when it was the right thing to do Mm. to, to divide the frenulum. And I had a whole lot of questions that I just couldn't answer by reading all the literature that was available. And trust me, I did I did search far <laughs> and wide. And I think that if I think the short answer is if it was simple, it would have been answered already. Mm-hmm. So I think the very fact that no one's been able to say this feature relates to this functional problem means that it's it's not simple and it's not a single factor that you can easily measure or see or label. And I think the, the nature of complexity of how babies' tongues need to move and all the things that interact and have an impact on tongue function are so complicated and so hard to measure in an individual but also from a research perspective that it is really hard to, to answer that question and I think my research was really looking at and trying to understand the anatomy of the lingual frenulum so when a frenulum is being divided or surgically cut what exactly what are the layers and structures that are actually you're aiming to cut and how do you do that in a safe way minimizing risk and, and get the most effective outcome so that was, and, and how do we understand, because if we look at everyone's frenulums, they look really different. You know, some are really thin and transparent and some are really thick and some you can hardly see and some look like the Eiffel Tower. And <laughs> there was no, until I did my research, there was never any explanation of what it, what exactly are you cutting mm-hmm. and how do you explain the differences and how a frenulum appears when you look at them. So I think I have been able to answer those questions I think correlating structure with function is is a lot more complicated, and mm. I think it, it may be that that is very hard research to do for, for lots of reasons. But I think at least we have the foundation of understanding structure better. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so you've hit the nail on the head. There is so much ambiguity. It's such a complex area, and let's break it down. Let's let's go back to definitions particularly for the listeners and also for myself. I mean, I've been um, head head in the papers for the last two days. Let's start off with what is a tongue tie? Let's start there. (laughs) And and what what if... How long have you got? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And what, if any, are there particular, uh, is it stages or severity of tongue tie? Yeah. Look, I I think to go back and this is you know a lot of teaching that I do on this topic 
takes it back a step further than that. And I think the, the reason is, I, I don't think you can say what a tongue tie is unless you understand what a lingual frenulum is. And I think there's a lot of kind of confusion and I think misuse of terminology specifically around this. And it, it really is quite simple in that if the tongue is elevated, so if we lift our tongue up and look in the mirror or, you know, if we're looking in our baby's mouths, underneath the tongue, when it's elevated, there's some tension that's created um, in the, the soft tissues underneath the tongue that elevate a fold underneath the tongue in the midline. And that is the lingual frenulum. And the problem is that a lot of people have started calling what they see a tongue tie. So looking under the tongue and saying your baby has a tongue tie and giving it a, a grade by where it's attached. So that's where the top of that fold, where it attaches along the undersurface of the tongue. Mm -hmm. And the grading system that's commonly used is that a grade one is when that fold attaches almost to the tip of the tongue. Mm -hmm. And a grade four is when it attaches um, very close to the, the base of the, um, or the bottom of the ventral surface of the tongue. And I think the, the problem is, if you think about it, that if you use that attachment point under, under the surface of the tongue as a grading system for tongue ties, every single person, every baby, every adult has a frenulum that can be given a grade and it can be given a grade of a tongue tie. So essentially that grading system allows every single person in the world <laughs> to be told they have a tongue tie. Because that grading system uses a variable in the anatomy to give everyone a, a grade of tongue tie. And there is no correlation with that grading and whether you have restriction in tongue movement. So if right. we go back and say that when you look under the tongue, what you're looking at is the frenulum. Mm -hmm. And if we do any kind of grading or description of that, we should say that we are describing the frenulum and a feature of the frenulum. So if we're looking at where it attaches to the tongue, we should still call it a frenulum, not a tongue tie. So not a grade one tongue tie. It should be it should be a um, how we're describing the frenulum. So then if you say, what is a tongue tie? Mm -hmm. A tongue tie is when we believe that tongue movement is restricted and they are referring to when the lingual frenulum does not allow the anterior tongue and possibly the mid tongue to move freely to do specific tasks. And I think it's really important to understand that the tongue has to move in a very different way to do different tasks. So how the tongue needs to move for breastfeeding is different than how the tongue moves for bottle feeding. And then it's different again for how it needs to move for eating yeah, and for drinking and for speech. So when we talk about tongue tie, it's a kind of global term and often ankyloglossia is the kind of more medical um, equivalent of that term. It's quite subjective because there isn't, a test that says you do or don't have a tongue tie. Um, so it's based on subjective analysis of whether 
the tongue is not able to move in a specific way to do a specific activity. And it's very fascinating and complicated. The tongue, I could talk for an hour just about the tongue and how amazing the tongue is as a structure and how incredible it is, you know, the way it functions and moves. Are there Um, people who... Are there people who specialise in this? Because, I, I mean, I, I think as a postpartum doula, I, I see a lot of newborn mamas going to see, um, you know, maternal child health nurse or a lactation consultant and being, you know, their child being diagnosed as having a tongue tie. Do you Do you think that this is something that should be... I don't know, a a skill that needs to be trained in order to, I guess, determine whether a child has tongue tie or not, or or are we just, you know, a a bit of cowboys out there just over-diagnosing? Yeah, look, I I think it is really complicated and it's difficult to kind of concentrate that down into a a short summary. I think my... My general experience is that a lot of people have learnt how to grade a tongue tie by looking at the frenulum and where it attaches. Mm. And they will, you know, soon after a baby's born, will tell the parents that their child has a grade whatever tongue tie because they're using terminology, I think, incorrectly. You know, they're, they're seeing a frenulum and describing a feature of a frenulum and the, the problem is that whether what they see is causing problems or not is going to be very different in different babies. And that single feature that the grading system works on doesn't correlate directly to whether they're going to have problems or not. But the thing is, if there are problems, if there are breastfeeding problems, and a family have been told that their child has a tongue tie, and then they go on social media and start trying to understand that Mm. they really will be given information that makes them think that it is something that needs to be fixed and will be very driven to do that to fix all of the problems that they're experiencing and I think the problem with that way of looking at things is that you don't take that step back and have a look at the big picture and often really simple and basic things are neglected like good positioning, yep, hundred uh, percent, and and thinking about things that uh, potentially can contribute to the problems that have been experienced, but because it becomes very tunnel visioned, you know, this they've been told something's wrong. Their, their child has a tongue tie. They become very focused on that. That is something that is wrong that needs to be fixed. And so I think that's really driven the rate of phrenotomy higher because whenever problems exist, if someone's looked at the tongue and told them they have a tongue tie, they of course want to have something done that's going to help them and help their baby. And I think, for example, in my practice in a public hospital, I have seen a not insignificant number of babies who have already had a tongue tie release, you know, frenulum surgery, And it didn't help their feeding and they've been sent to me and I have diagnosed them with a partial cleft of their soft palate. And I think I'm just using that as an example because I think every single person involved in the care of those children, those babies, has not 
thought and been systematic and thought about all the potential things that could contribute to feeding difficulties and excluded them before rushing in and doing an operation on a baby that was never going to be um, fixing the problem. And I think if you just take that general stance and say, yes, there is some evidence that in some babies, if the tongue can't move freely, that doing surgery to divide it can improve the, the function and the comfort for the mum with feeding. But unless you've kind of taken a, a broad view first and make sure that all the other things are checked before jumping into concluding that that's the cause of everything, mm. I think there are definitely babies that are having phrenotomy surgery that aren't going to get benefit from it. And it's just because people have jumped to the conclusion that yep. what they can see is the cause of the problems. Yeah, it's the classic, you know, silver bullet scenario. And yeah. we were and look, discussing earlier, you know, of course, as a mother, you want to be doing all the right, you know, quote unquote, right things for your child. I mean, I was looking after a particular mum who didn't have any feeding issues at all with her child. And then I think she was, oh, that's right. So it was after the six week vaccination. And he just started to have issues with feeding and obviously, you know, dropped a little bit of weight, still in the normal range, but, you know, dropped a little bit of weight and went to the next um, maternal child health nurse checkup. And then, you know, the nurse was like, oh, tongue tie. Tongue tie is the problem with the feeding. You'll have to get that snipped. And it really scared her because, you know, the the concept of having to, you know, have her baby's tongue cut was something that she wasn't comfortable with and we spoke about it together because it caused her a lot of anxiety and I said to her, okay, hold on a minute, let's let's take a step back. He's been feeding really well this entire time. If there was a tongue tie issue it probably would have cropped up very early on. You probably wouldn't have been able to establish like a great breastfeeding kind of latch and everything like that. Do you think possibly it's because he's just had his vaccinations and he's feeling a bit off, you know, like he's just not right, which we all know that post-vaccination our kids are, you know, miserable and, you know, not not themselves. And I said to her, see how you go for the next couple of days, see if it changes, because she was getting pressured. Oh, I'll book you in for the, for the phrenotomy. We'll just get it done, get it sorted straight away. And she waited a couple of days and he came good and he was fine. You know, it's just, it's a really, it really bothers me that people pigeonhole breastfeeding issues straight into tongue tie when it's unnecessary you know as you said you need to look at the big picture with all of it and I I think it is a good thing to be looking at and thinking about yeah but I think to do that as the first thing that's blamed for all problems I think is problematic that's right and concerning and that and that doesn't mean that there aren't babies that will benefit from having their frenulum divided. Absolutely. It just means that the number of parents that are being told that it will benefit them is greater than the number that are actually getting benefit. Yes, that's exactly <laughs> right, Nikki. Exactly right. Yes. Okay. And, so- and, 
was, you know, and I think that the guilt thing, you know, is often kind of laid on that if you don't do it, they'll have problems with speech when they're older. And so that know, was one of, of the things. questions. Think, that was one of the questions from the listeners. Does it actually affect their speech? Because I had, I had um, someone, one of our followers on Instagram, say that. She felt very pressured by a health practitioner and they said to her, you know, on day two of her baby being born, oh, they've got a tongue tie. If you don't, if you don't snip that, she's going to have difficulty with her speech. You want to get that done now. And she was, again, the pressure of, oh, my goodness, okay, well, I obviously want the best for my child. So what's, what's the relationship with speech? So I think from an evidence perspective, I think there's very little evidence, if any, really to support that a tongue tie affects speech. But I think not all tongue ties are the same. And I think probably the best evidence for affecting speech is if the frenulum attaches very close to the tip of the tongue. Mm -hmm. And if the attachment from that point through to the inner surface of the gum is very short, then the front of the tongue is going to have a lot of trouble moving very far. If you imagine, you know, that there's a centimetre or less than a centimetre and the tip of the tongue is almost fused to the inner surface of the gums, Mm -hmm. I think that clearly is going to affect how the the front of the tip of the tongue can move and we need to be able to do that and and interestingly some of those babies can breastfeed really well and there's good reasons for that but those are probably the exception and usually it's quite clinically evident that their tongue is really limited with Mm -hmm. the tip of the tongue and how it can move and I think they are a very, very small percentage of babies. It's quite unusual to have such a significant uh, tethering. Right. There is absolutely no evidence that a posterior tongue tie, so that's one that doesn't extend very far along the ventral surface or the undersurface of the tongue, there's no evidence that that affects speech uh, at all. It doesn't exist. Okay. So I think that from a speech point of view, it really is the more classical, very anterior, very short tethering frenulums that have the potential to affect speech and probably is a little bit language variable as well. And Mm -hmm. my understanding is that there are some Asian languages that require sounds that we don't make when we're speaking English that are more difficult if the anterior tongue is more restricted in movement. For the English language, actually, uh, the tip of the tongue is very lazy (laughs) and it needs to be in a very specific position, the tip of the tongue, to make sounds, but it doesn't actually have big excursion. So, you know, not being able to move huge amounts Mm -hmm. actually doesn't affect the English language. It's um, probably more of an issue with eating and moving our tongue to clear debris of food from our teeth and and for um, issues such as that, which requires more complex um, anterior tongue movements than speech. Okay. And there's good good evidence for that. And so Um, I guess going back to definitions, you know, we we keep referring to a phrenotomy, which is – which is, correct me if I'm wrong, the actual snipping of the frenulum – 
The other word. You know, I'll, I'll just stop you there. Yeah. I, I yeah. think it's just, I, I think that is technically correct. Yeah. I think it is a surgical procedure. It is cutting. And I think the, the term snip is used quite often to try and downplay, downplay. Yes. the surgical procedure. Uh-huh. And I think my, my thinking is that it should be treated as surgery because you are cutting, you have the potential for complications. Mm-hmm. It is a, an intervention requiring cutting at surgery. So I try and, um, you know, I think, you know, just a little snip and things like that are really kind of downplaying that you actually are having surgery. (laughs) No, thank you for that point, Nikki, because it is, it's all about the language that we use. And And it it kind of triggers me as well in the sense that I had a C-section. And so, you know, people, I guess, um, have this way, and, and you see it on social media, you know, women come out of hospital after four days and then we don't really get much post-op consultation, but it's major surgery. And, you know, if you compare that to a knee reconstruction or anything like that, you know, how much physio do you get as part of that, you know, package, I guess. And I guess, yeah, that, that, that's a really good point that you raised. You know, it is surgical. It's not just a, it's not just a snip. It's actual cutting of, of the tissue. So how does that compare with something which I, I've read in the literature, a phrenectomy? Is that the laser or is that just another word no, for phrenectomy? No, so that's not re- relating at all to the tool. So different tools can be used to cut. Right. But the phrenectomy is essentially when tissue is being removed and taken away, removing part of the oral of the frenulum. I, I think... The most common form of surgery for the frenulum is a division, mm-hmm. which is basically using something to cut through tissues without removing anything. So from a right. purist point of view, um, it is a phrenotomy. It is possible to do more complicated surgery where you move some tissues around or use sutures And there can be different reasons for why you might do that. Mm -hmm. And that is called a frenulaplasty, like a rhinoplasty or a nose job. You know, it's when you're moving things around and um, making something slightly different from them. That is usually done as a more complicated procedure where you might have scarring. So I, I would do that in children who come to me who have had several phrenotomies um, done and have a lot of scarring and tethering and that's to tr- try and create healing with less scarring and it's essentially a plastic surgical procedure where you're using special techniques to try and um, change where the incisions are and, and the scarring. Right. So on that point, multiple phrenotomies, let's talk about revisions. <laughs> <laughs> What, it, what, what's your you feeling know, I, on this, Nikki? <laughs> I, I, did, I know. I did ask you to, to, yeah. to ask me I was going to say, I've had a triggered way. moment. Now's your turn to be triggered. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it's, I'm assuming that a lot of your audience is from down under. Mm. Um, the use of revision um, is used a lot in American social media and with clinicians over there, particularly in the dental world where a lot of um, phrenotomies are done. And 
I think it's a confusing and misused term because revision, if you do revision surgery, it normally means you did something and then you had to go back and do it again. Mm -hmm. But they generally use that term in America as meaning the initial procedure that your baby needs revision, which is I, it's confusing as a surgeon it makes no sense to me but I think it has been brought into play as terminology by dentists so it's kind of a funny word but yeah it, I, I try and avoid the word revision in your practice just because I think it's <laughs> misused and so but but then to go on there are lots of babies who have a procedure done it either helped and then got worse again or it never helped and they think doing it again might, you know, it wasn't done properly the first time or for whatever reasons. But mm. I've seen babies who have had multiple procedures, which is very concerning because, you know, the the high likelihood is if it didn't help when it was first done, then doing it again, you know, is less likely <laughs> to get a better result and will create more scarring and have more potential risk. So, I think it, it becomes really confusing because they use revision when they don't really mean revision, but yeah. then they do do multiple surgeries and they don't differentiate that between a baby who's had only one procedure and many. Yeah. So it just confuses everybody to, to you. Yeah. Yeah. It does. What's your opinion about dentists actually performing the surgery? Look, I, I don't think I can make a generalisation. Mm-hmm. I think I have a, a couple of comments, which are my opinion, but with a lot of knowledge and yeah. um, reason for saying them. A lot of dentists use laser as the tool for, for the phrenotomy. So they're cutting with, essentially, it, it's a cutting tool that uses light energy. And some of that energy is absorbed as heat into the tissues beneath that that you're cutting Mm -hmm. and I think there are some concerns and I've raised them in the research that I've done and they're based on sound anatomical um, reason for concern there are very small nerves that travel immediately under the surface so that's the the surface tissue that's been cut when you divide the frenulum Mm -hmm. that when you cut with a knife or a sharp instrument those tissues glide over the top so those nerves are very low risk for having any damage. But any cutting that's done with an instrument that creates thermal injury, which is a laser or any kind of diathermy, there is potential for those nerves directly under what you're cutting to absorb some of that energy and be harmed mm-hmm. temporarily or permanently. And potentially that can affect sensation to the tip of the tongue of an infant, which has huge implications because if a baby can't feel their tongue, the reflexes involved in breastfeeding are going to be not able to, to work. And a newborn baby can't tell you that they can't feel their tongue anymore. Yeah. So I, th- I think there, there are concerns specifically around lasers, and dentists aren't the only people that use lasers. There are some other clinicians that do. And I think it's not... Different lasers behave differently and, you know, absorbed into the tissue at different energy rates and different depths due to the nature of the the type of laser. But also there are going to be huge variables with the 
individual clinician that's doing it mm-hmm. um, and that if they go very slowly that more energy will be absorbed into the tissues whereas if they go very quickly not so much so technique is going to be a really big factor as well as the, the tool you use and I think that the other thing the other question I have around dentists is I guess whether they are doing due diligence regarding a holistic approach in thinking of all of the other things that could be causing the breastfeeding difficulties or whether they are just paying off their very large bill that they pay to buy their laser and doing as many patients as they possibly can. Mm. And it's a little sceptical to talk like that, but I think it's really important just to kind of think about the, the motivation for people for doing the procedure and whether they really are sure themselves and have the skills themselves to make sure that they have thought about everything else that might be causing the breastfeeding problems. Yeah. And most dentists don't do any history or clinical, very limited clinical examination. All of the babies that have had the partial cleft palates have come through having had divisions by dentists and they haven't even looked in their mouth to, to examine the oral cavity. So I'm, I'm just saying yeah. be careful and that that doesn't mean that there aren't good dentists out there yeah um, <laughs> we're not gonna we're not uh, we're not flogging on all the dentists out there <laughs> um but it's a good point that you raise though because again you know as we kind of discussed offline this podcast is just about informing people and empowering them with the decision making around you know these are just some red flags that you need to be aware yeah, of and and my, I guess my kind of thoughts around that are that if any baby is going to have a phrenotomy, I think they should have had input from ideally a lactation consultant or someone who has a lot of knowledge and expertise in that area. And they should have had a really thorough check of their anatomy. And somebody should have watched the baby and mother feeding and looked at what they're doing from a dynamic point of view and from a positioning point of view because unless you've done all of that you're just jumping to assuming that it's the frenulum that's the problem when it may or may not be and and I think I I actually trained I'm an IBCLC because I wasn't comfortable to do a phrenotomy unless I really understood and was comfortable that all the other things had been thought about. And I didn't always have access to the mothers and babies being able to be seen by a lactation consultant before I saw them because of resource limitations in the public hospital system. So that was my own kind of due diligence, I guess, just trying to make sure that I had that knowledge. Yeah, and that is absolutely one of the reasons why I was so excited to interview you because you've got more acronyms than the alphabet um, after your name, Nikki. (laughs) But, you know, the the combination of an ENT who specialises in frenulum and your IBCLC, which for all those playing at home is an internationally international board lactation consultant, essentially like you're the guru of breastfeeding, which gets me to my next point, which is your wonderful study last year. You and your team published a first of its kind where you captured MRI imaging of 
the mother baby dyad breastfeeding in real time where you demonstrated the dynamic anatomical aspects of breastfeeding. Can you walk us through this study? Uh, the pictures, which I will put in our show notes and I'll have um, this as part of our social media as well, are fascinating. What did you find out? What did you discover from that study? Um, that it's really hard to do. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, I was I, I did note the comment where there was uh was that one one particular baby just wasn't having any any part of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, look it was as far as I know I'm the only person in the world that's ever pulled that off. Yeah. Well when I say I've pulled it off, the mums and babes that were part of my um study were willing to give it a go and were able to do it. When I first, you know, did the proposal for doing the research and I needed to get a, a radiologist um, as part of our team. And I said, you know, like, I've just got this idea. What do you think? Because there have been um, some things that they have managed to get two people into an um, MRI scanner to, to do some dynamic studies. We won't go into detail about what that was. <laughs> but um, Is that to make so the it, babies it, that were now in your study? Um, <laughs> but he... You know, he was open-minded, but he looked at me and thought for a few seconds and he was going, yeah, nah. <laughs> he said, no, I don't think that's possible. And I'm like, yeah, but what do you think about trying it? And he was like, yeah, nah. <laughs> and anyway, in the end, after um, quite some time, I managed to persuade him to help me, um, support me to do the um, ethics approval and get funding and mm -hmm. give it a go. But the, the interesting thing about, Imaging breastfeeding, so trying to understand what's happening with sucking and swallowing is that almost all of the research that we have exists with bottle feeding. And the reason for that is that if you are drinking milk from a bottle, you can put some radio-opaque material into yes. the milk. And then when they swallow, you can make it visible on x-ray and do videos of it. But breast milk is not radio-opaque. So there, there have been a few studies that have tried in different ways to try and look at what's happening, but they've always interfered with actually what's happening by either putting a, a little catheter and adding the contrast in alongside the breast and the breast milk and okay. putting them into very abnormal positions for feeding and doing all sorts of things. And none of them have really been looking at truly what is happening with breastfeeding without fiddling with it, without mm -hmm. interfering with it. Mm -hmm. But the reality is that an MRI scanner is very noisy and so it's quite hard. You have to put little earmuffs on mum and baby. Yeah, that was such um, a cute little not, photo in um, your figures. For all those playing at home, the, the kids were, they had almost like little plastic kind of cups, was it, over their ears yeah, and then you bandaged then around. We ended up that we had to... Um, do a little head bandage over them so that um, it didn't get uh, interfered, you know, when they yeah. were moving around yeah. to latch, yeah. that they didn't rub them off. Um, so there was lots of the, the, the mums and babies that were willing to um, do that with me were just amazing. Lots of them were speech language therapists, essentially, oh. <laughs> and were fascinated by the work that I was doing. So they were very willing volunteers. But I, I think the reality is that it was hard to 
get a lot of information from it. There was mm-hmm. was some certainly they were the most incredible and beautiful images that you could imagine, but it was hard from a scientific point of view to measure things and compare things just by nature of how hard it was to capture the the, the images. So we did kind of present it as a pilot study. Yep. I don't think that it ever is going to have any use in a clinical setting because it's just so hard to do. Yeah. But I think it did give us some useful information. There were some things that um, we were able to to look at that weren't able to be looked at in any other way. But for looking at tongue movement, there's been some really amazing research done um, in Western Australia by Donna Geddes and the, the team at the University of Western Australia. And I was lucky enough to have Donna as my one of my supervisors for my PhD. Mm-hmm. So I had the great fortune of spending quite a lot of time with her and talking a lot with her um, throughout my PhD. But the ultrasound has some limitations and it really can only look at anterior and mid-tongue. And I was curious about the whole aspect of sucking and swallowing. So I did the MRI and we also did using a small flexible camera pass through the baby's nose to look at the throat and voice box. Yep. Which we do as part of my kind of everyday clinical practice, looking at airway problems and breathing problems and swallowing problems. And it is possible while the camera's in place to get the baby to breastfeed and look at what's happening when they're sucking and swallowing. And again, there are some really amazing researchers around the world that are using that technology to assess in clinical practice, which we we do all the time. Mm -hmm. But we looked at some specific things, including the impact of gravity, so how the baby is positioned at the breast and how that might impact on the sucking, swallowing and breathing the infant while they were breastfeeding. And no one has ever kind of published anything on any information. And what did did you find with that? Because I'm fascinated by that. After working with Dr. Pamela Douglas and her gestalt breastfeeding program, just those micro movements, and I now employ that in my practice as a postpartum doula in kind of supporting mothers with their breastfeeding journey, I find it fascinating how just these small little movements and that leaning back as if you, what is, what is, how's Pam describe it? Like a, you're in a sun deck chair, uh, which I think is lovely because it's just like, you know, if only we could be drinking pina coladas while we're, um, while we're feeding. But yes. what did you find with that, with the positioning? Yeah, so the, the micro movements, I think probably trying to look at those and, and what the impact they have on breastfeeding are probably best assessed by Donna and her group in Western Australia because they look at the sucking component and they also look at they have put small catheters in the baby's mouth alongside the nipple and are actually able to measure the the pressure or or the vacuum inside and the degree you know give it a a numerical um, number and how that changes through the sucking cycle. And potentially, I, I would be really curious to look at what the micro movements and how that impacts on the intraoral um, pressure and swallowing efficacy. But what we were looking at was more to do with the pharyngeal phase, so the throat, the swallowing phase of breastfeeding. And there were huge, I, I think, really, I guess, one of the things, big things we were looking at is that slightly reclined maternal position and what the impact of that was on the breathing and swallowing of an infant and that 
kind of laid back positioning has been used by midwives and lactation consultants for probably centuries, but no one has ever, I think, ever explained exactly why it works. Yeah, right. So the, so the research that I did was looking at, as, as one of the things was looking at that laid back positioning and particularly for babies who have laryngomalacia, which is noisy breathing associated with collapse of the, the soft tissues above the voice box and it can make it hard for them to breastfeed. They, you know, become noisy when they feed and they can cough and choke a lot. Um, and that laid back position works really well for them. And, and the research that I've published on that explains why that is. Has it got anything or was or, or any of the research that you've seen kind of connect anything to reflux or colic? There are some publications that talk about tongue ties and reflux. Mm-hmm. The, the interesting thing is that they're very the measures that they use are grades or scales looking at reflux reported symptoms in babies. And as you can imagine, you know the, the irritability and and things of infants can be very non-specific and proving that reflux has improved I think in a more technical way is quite hard to do and Mm -hmm. I did you know look at some of the the things that might be possible to try and actually measure you know gastric (laughs) distension and how much air was in the stomach because they talked a lot about aerophagia you know going back to the tongue tie stuff Mm. Um, and I did talk a lot with Donna and the group in Western Australia about how how hard it would be. Sharon Perella had done some really interesting work looking at gastric content and things to look at whether you could prove that they were swallowing air and whether that changed or improved after phrenotomy. And no, no one has actually done that in an objective way. All of those studies have used very subjective measures. Mm, yeah, because it's mm. another one that I hear a lot of. Oh, my baby has tongue tie, so they're sucking in air and now she has colic. And that's why she's so unsettled, which I'm just like, oh, wow, that's a lot of degrees of kind of separation there to go from this to this. But Nikki, I'm mindful of your time and I would love to wrap up with our rapid fire. And you've stolen a couple of my questions already, but that's okay. (laughs) I'm going to try and cover off some things that were sent through by the listeners as well. I want to start with if there is a parent who's being advised that their baby has a tongue tie, what would be your number one piece of advice or a very brief step-by-step, these are the types of things that you probably need to check off first before you deep dive into getting a phrenotomy um, looked into? Um, in the context of having breastfeeding difficulties as well. Yeah, yeah. So, so I think the first thing I would say is get someone who is experienced in um, breastfeeding knowledge to to spend time and take a holistic view and assessment, and to make sure that somebody has done a very thorough assessment of anatomy. So not just the tongue, but the whole of the baby's. <laughs> head, oral cavity, neck, chest, breathing, you know, and really made sure that they've looked at everything. And I think then it's in the context of what the problems are and what the findings are with the anatomy and whether 
it kind of fits as a potential cause of those problems or not. You know, and I think just having a holistic view rather than someone just looking at the tongue and saying that must be causing everything. Right. Yeah. Don't go, don't, don't just essentially go look at the structure and then go, that's a functional issue. What, what further research, what have you got next in the pipeline for your research? Are you allowed to talk about it? Actually, that's a good point. <laughs> uh, so I um, dedicated a significant portion of my um, life to doing the research that I did, and I did it unpaid. Mm-hmm. So I took a, a quite significant salary cut to to do all of my work on a volunteer basis. I completed my PhD last year Mm -hmm. for my thesis and had the honour of um, being awarded the best PhD for Auckland University for 2020. So that was a huge... um, Wow, that's amazing. Congratulations. Huge huge achievement. Um, (laughs) And I must say at this point in time, I think if I was 10 years earlier in my career, I probably, I had lots of ideas that I would have loved to explore further. And I think I'm naturally have a very inquiring mind, but I'm not sure that I will be doing any more research. I okay. think, um, um, yeah. That's fair enough. I'll be just focusing <laughs> on helping individual mums and babies. Yeah. Okay. Do you think that there needs to be some tighter restrictions or policy or regulations around um, diagnosis and or treatment of tongue tie? Tricky. I don't think there's a simple answer to that. Yeah. Because I think that would be very hard to do just because of the complexity of the, the nature of it. Sure. Yeah. Tricky. tricky. I don't okay. Pass. Yeah. <laughs> Pass. <laughs> um, from one of our um, followers, they asked, can a tongue tie have an effect on jaw development? <laughs> I'm trying to think how I can say that. I think um, the tongue is a very big muscle. Yep. And the frenulum is it is a fold of fascia, which is connective tissue, that is not usually very distensible. So it's kind of like a reasonably tight tissue. So when the tongue pulls on that tissue, Mm -hmm. there is some potential for modelling of the inner surface of the the lower jaw and sometimes you can see in older children who've had quite a restrictive tongue tie that the middle teeth have rotated inwards and you can see that there's where the frenulum is there's a a slight you know modification with how that bone has modeled and grown Um, so I think it is possible on that level um, with more severe tongue ties I think it's chicken and the egg around tongue ties, small jaws, high palates. Um, I don't believe that the tongue tie caused those things. I think that in those contexts when there is a tongue tie, it's part of a formation of often when you have a small jaw, it doesn't give a lot of space for the tongue to grow Mm -hmm. antenatally, so before the baby's born. So the tongue tends to be quite short because the jaw is small, the tongue has been held high in the oral cavity for longer in the fetal development, which means the arch of the palate is high. And those things are driven by the growth of the mandible, not the tongue, not a tongue tie. Right. So so I think it's just more complicated rather than the tongue tie causing those things. I yep. think the frenulum, different forms of frenulum can be associated with other configurations of other anatomy. And I don't think it's causal. 
in, in that circumstance. I think it's just associated with a broader kind of different way that the, the tongue and jaw and palate are formed. Okay. And our final question, which we ask all of our guests, what do you keep on your bedside table? <laughs> I have something called a sleep band, which is basically headphones that I can listen to audio books to go to sleep to. <laughs> oh. I don't disturb my partner when I go to sleep. <laughs> what What are your – are you a fact or fiction? Like what, what are you reading or what are you listening to at the moment? Um. I tend to listen to fiction to go to sleep because it makes my very busy brain <laughs> switch off from all the problems of the world that I can't solve Yeah, um, and gives me a little uh, escape. Um, I've just finished listening to an amazing book called The Midnight Library, which is um, a fascinating book. Okay. Yeah, But I tend to listen to um, nonfiction during the daytime, but if I want to sleep, I listen to fiction. Okay. So just just a sleep band on on your bedside it's, table. It's a special. Um, it's just a soft headband that has ear, you know, phones. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that sit over your ears, so you can listen to things with no one else in the room having to be kept awake. That's fascinating. <laughs> I'm going to Google that. <laughs> All right, then, Nikki. Thank you so much for your time. This has been a very fascinating and enlightening um, chat with you. I am 100% sure that uh, our listeners are going to get so much out of this because as we can kind of see, it's such a complex area and so much from what I can tell, so much more research needs to be done. We're at the tip of the iceberg when it comes to tongue tie and the structure and function. Do you know if anyone's exploring that actually while I've got you here? I'm sure there will be. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure there's people I, I looking at your paper. Whoever is willing to take it on. <laughs> no, I love it. I love it. I love. I, I remember during my PhD, you know, the next student that came in the lab. It's nice to kind of have the closing of your chapter, but hand the baton on to the next person and just say, it is all yours, <laughs> you know? <laughs> but thank you again so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And um, I would love to have you on the podcast again to talk about um, some other things to do with ENT and, and breastfeeding and things like that. I feel like I need to maybe have a little um, collab with yourself and Pamela on the podcast. I think that would be a really good kind of roundtable chat about um, breastfeeding and, um, and tongue tie. I think that would be good. Mm, yeah. But thanks again and hope the weather's beautiful in New Zealand. I hope... Um, Things are starting to open up, perhaps, maybe, over there. <laughs> it's hard time, isn't it? Yeah, it is tough time. But thank you very much, and um, we'll see you later. Great. Thanks. You're welcome. If you loved this episode, please hit the subscribe button and leave a review. If you know someone out there who would also love to listen to this episode, please hit the share button so they can benefit from it as well. Thank you for listening to The Science of Motherhood. We'll see you next time. Bye. Thank you for listening to The Science of Motherhood. If you would like to contact us, we are at ifillyourcup.com or you can DM us at ifillyourcup underscore via Instagram. 
You can find all of our services, including our postpartum in-home care and our Fill Your Freezer meal delivery service as well through both those channels. Thanks so much for listening.